welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season of Origins is sponsored by Cooley and Silicon Valley Bank. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the very beginning. They've helped us form both notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups that we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at cooleygo.com. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. Zach Ahrens is a partner and co-founder at Metaprop, an investment and advisory firm focused on prop tech. Zach is also a project manager and developer at Millennium, a large-scale mixed-use developer based here in New York City. Previously, Zach was a founder and angel investor focused on prop tech here in New York. Zach Ahrens, the one, the only. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Nick. We're here at Silicon Valley Bank. Super happy to be here. I, 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 I must say that I would, Origins is probably in the top three or four uh, podcasts that focus on LPs um, out there. Yeah. Maybe yeah, yeah, even sure. the top two. Sure. I mean, there's a bunch of them yeah. these days. So. Huge, huge um, subject matter and audience. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just like millions of people. So you should be, you should be proud about accomplishing that. I appreciate that. We just eked our way into the top four. Yeah. Yeah. No, for yeah. sure. I wasn't going to say that, but, um, uh, so, uh, and this is the second time you're on origins actually. It is in yeah. fact. Yeah. yeah. The, the first time yeah. we I, might publish, we might publish that as like a lost tapes. At some yeah. Point. I was slightly uncouth. It's, it's kind of like when, when Carl Perkins and Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis, they, they all got together and jammed out one night and they couldn't publish any of it. But if you go to sun records in Memphis, you can actually hear That's right. uh, That's some right. of those recordings. Right. I think it was basically the same thing as that. There's going to be a lost tapes. Yeah. We're going to publish it. Cool. Um, when I finally sunset origins and the audience just needs that one last extra yeah. episode. Yeah, throw it in there. That's going to be the one. It's a great idea. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So I started uh, after college, I started working on Wall Street. I learned a lot, but didn't knew that it wasn't going to be a career for me. So in I, real estate? Or? No, I was doing investment banking okay. for okay. retail and apparel companies, doing okay. M&A and restructuring work. Yep. And then I got an opportunity to partner with an old friend from summer camp, Camp Mackinac wow. to be specific, wow. to do a online offline walking tour company called Travel Goat. Right. And we ran that for a while and we started trying to develop our own technology focused originally on iPod audio tours. This was wow. pre-iPhone. Wow. So we very quickly- in New York, like in New that. York, yeah. uh, we very quickly realized that we were really good at leading tours and really bad at building technology, but that there was something happening, especially when the iPhone first came out, 
that mobile was going to be a huge um, thing in development. What was your favorite tour? My favorite tour that I've ever led by far is the Saturday Night Fever tour of Bensonhurst and Bay Ridge. And I invite any listener um, to hit me up and see we can get a group together on a Saturday afternoon and and redo that. Is that published anywhere? I don't know if I ever did a map of it uh, and put it on the site. The, The Travel Goat site, I do keep up uh as a as a vestige of my prior career you can check it out it's travelgoat.com i pay the hosting fees every month but i have not updated it in seven years probably okay and also it's a little bit stale but uh it's like the third or fourth best walking tour of the no it's probably like the 15th best but (laughs) what's funny about there's a lot of interesting things like what was going on at that time in the community was there were there were platforms like Yellow Arrow? Do you mm-hmm. remember Yellow Arrow? So Yellow Arrow came out around the same time Dennis Crowley's first startup came out, which was called Dodgeball. Right, and all of these startups were focused mainly on urban exploration and early augmented reality. So sort of connecting the physical world with yep. the digital world, and that obviously exploded with the iPhone and then Foursquare. And when Foursquare released its API the floodgates for these tour apps were just opened. Mm -hmm. And I started to see a lot of different, more talented software developers than people on my team were, were developing really, really cool platforms, primarily leveraging the Foursquare API. This was starting around 2009, 2010. And I decided that I was going to sunset my idea of becoming a technology CEO myself, and I was going to instead start investing in other technology CEOs. Mm. So that's mm. that's how I got interested in technology was through this walking tour business. Mm. And then I also got hired. I also started doing a lot of content marketing and social media marketing uh, early on in order to get tours. So we were one of the first companies to go hard on TripAdvisor and advertise on mm. Facebook and start doing content right. marketing and event marketing. And I would use that to drive not just traffic to my website, but to drive signups for my tours. And my father, who's been a real estate developer now for almost 40 years, he noticed some of the stuff we were doing and had a really brilliant thought that a lot of these same social media marketing and content marketing techniques could actually be utilized in a real estate context. Huh for community engagement specifically. So Hmm. a lot of large-scale development projects face community opposition in their infancy, but they Hmm. also have a latent base of support. Now, traditionally, to obtain that support, you had to go physically door-to-door and ask people if they wanted to support your project and if they were willing to write a letter Hmm. um, to a legislator or show up at a a public hearing on Hmm. your behalf. My father, very astutely, this was around 2010, realized that the power of social media could actually compel millennials to support a project online and galvanize support Hmm. for a project online. So we started experimenting with some of those tools and had some success galvanizing support for a real estate project in Los Angeles using those tools. And at that time, I had sort of an aha moment where we started realizing, well, what other aspects of the real estate business can we use technology uh, to improve, to make faster, better, and cheaper? And then simultaneously, I was in business school and a well-known venture capitalist here in New York, Stu Ellman, was my professor. And he told me that 
what I was doing made no sense. It was totally disjointed. I was doing these walking tour apps on one side and I was working at a real estate company on another side. <laughs> and he made right. the powerful recommendation to me that instead of focusing my technology energy into walking tour applications, that I focus my technology energy and expertise into real estate. Yeah. So I decided to make a good decision in hindsight, take his advice, and I planted a flag in the ground and I said, I'm going to be the real estate tech guy. Yeah. And so I'm going to make myself available for venture capitalists like Stu, who are looking to get educated on the space. I'm going to make myself available for traditional real estate players who want education about the space. And I'm going to make myself available to entrepreneurs as someone who knows how to talk to real estate people, knows how to sell things to real estate people, knows yep. the industry parlance. And at that time, this was almost a decade ago, that was very rare. It's now yep. sort of a mainstream thing. What um, is real estate? Real estate technology, yep. prop tech, we call it, yep. has kind of burst into the mainstream, which is which is great for us. And, and we can talk about that later. But at that time, I was somewhat of a of a novelty in the industry. And because of that, I was able to fight my way into some competitive uh, venture deals, make a bunch of relationships with venture capitalists, and then sort of launch my my career in prop tech. Yeah. I remember, yeah, because I remember when we first met, which was maybe four years ago or something. Um, crazy. It's actually been that long. It feels like yesterday. And uh, I remember meeting you through the context of like, Zach is the real estate tech angel guy. Yeah. He's yeah. the guy. Um, maybe it was because we were looking at something or anyway, but um, where did you, uh, so tell us a little bit about how you like started to build that reputation because um, I guess, and like where you even like went, like how you made your first angel investments, for example, like you're coming out of business school, Stu gave you some good advice and said, you know, put, I guess, maybe put the startup aside, take all your knowledge around real estate and start helping other founders in that space investing. Like where, where did you literally start? Well, I found, I started making angel investments in the social local mobile space, primarily connected to my walking tours. Right. Those angel investments were done in a really crazy way, I would read about new apps in the industry rags and I would cold call the oh, founders. Really? Wow. And this I would. This is in like 2000. This is like circa eight, 2009, 2010. Okay. Got it. And surprisingly, a lot of them took my phone calls and shocker, they were all raising rounds of capital. I didn't right. know what a round was. I didn't know what a convertible note was. I didn't right. know what preferred equity was. I didn't know any of the terms. Uh, and I invested in some of them. Um, some I got lucky and they got bought out early on by companies that are now big like Airbnb. Right. Some of them I got lucky and they pivoted to deep enterprise tech and are now doing millions of dollars in revenue. And then some I wasn't so lucky and they went bankrupt. Um, Were any? Did any work out just as expected? No. Zero. <laughs> Zero. Wow. Yeah, they were either acquired and the acquisitions were, were were quite good, especially if you consider the appreciation of Airbnb. Um, and then in the case of the ones that pivoted, they became successful because they they had core technology that was impressive that no one really cared about mm -hmm. in a social local mobile walking tour context, but people cared about for things like cybersecurity. 
Mm. for example. Mm. Um, that's another story for another day. Mm. But though that was my first experience with angel investing. Once you get the bug, you can't really go so back. So you just literally were like cold, cold calling. I was cold calling yeah. people. Which I is went, awesome. Like you didn't ask for permission. You just were like, screw it. I went to, I, I, I'll never forget this. One of the first investments I made. So I had wireframes. I was going to pivot Travel Goat from being sort of a generic crowdsourced walking tour, audio walking tour platform on the app to an artificially intelligent itinerary generator. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea. I had wireframes drawn up. I was ready to go. And I would watch, this was back in 2010, the TechCrunch Disrupt New York conference. A lot of my friends were there. I had to be in LA for work on my real estate project that I mentioned earlier. And I saw a guy present my same idea. Mm. But he had, they were Silicon Valley guys. Mm. They clearly had a technical expertise that I couldn't dream of. And I had a friend there and I told her, I said, don't let that guy leave Mm. before you give him my number. Um, And she did it. She stalked him during the conference, made friends (laughs) with him, gave him my number, said, you have to meet my friend, Zach. He's been wanting to build this. You know, he's going to want to, he's going to want to invest. And so I sort of pestered this guy for a while and finally he let me in and then his business didn't work. But he was lucky enough to to pivot it to the enterprise, and now it's doing very very well. Actually, what was the company the company's now called Insight Engines. Okay, the company used to be called Weata. Okay, and the same algorithm that can tell you that when you query the same semantic search query, I'm looking for a place to go with the guys mm-hmm. for tacos mm-hmm. that's open on a Thursday afternoon, mm-hmm. is actually the same exact technology that a cybersecurity expert, a CIO at a Fortune 500 firm uses now via Splunk to query, I want to know which user has had three failed in login attempts Mm. at his or her desk Mm. over the past three weeks. Mm. Wow. It's the same terminology. And so now he's selling to the Fortune 500 a cybersecurity product. So how did you go from primarily investing around areas of interest that were related to travel go to making the decision to really focus on uh, real estate or prop tech yeah. investing. And where did you start with that? So I sourced the bulk of those deals on AngelList, actually. Really? Okay. Yeah. So back then, AngelList, before they cared about making money, AngelList had no monetization. And mm-hmm. it was a platform where someone with very limited experience in the mm-hmm. space like me could get vouched for by two people. All you needed was two people to vouch for you. You got on the platform. And at that point, there were not tens of thousands of people. Mm. There were hundreds of people right. on it. So it was a really right. tight community. Mm. I'll never forget Grant Wernick, who's the CEO of Inside Engines. Now we ought to, he said, you know, Zach, I, I, I have a good feeling about you. I really want to let you in. But some of the other investors are like, who is this guy? He doesn't mm. even have an angel list page. Mm. And I said, well, what is that? I'll get a page. <laughs> Let me get a page. If right. that's their one, if that's the one thing they're complaining <laughs> right. about, I'll hop right. on that thing. Right. And I found I had a couple friends in the community um, who agreed to vouch for me. And so I got on AngelList and then it was just like sort of opened up a whole world. And back then you could search for specifically for PropTech. Uh, it wasn't mm. called PropTech then, but you could, all the companies that were looking to do real estate were tagged in real right. estate. So a lot of right. the early um, real estate tech startups that I invested in, like Compstack, like Breather, mm-hmm. um, they were all sourced wow. 
off AngelList. Wow. As in they were raising capital on AngelList or they were just there and you would reach out to them? I cold reached out to them on right. AngelList. Yeah. Right. And they would respond because I would, I had a very pointed message. So my profile, by that time in my profile, I was getting out of business school and, my, and, and I was really working part-time for Millennium. So I was a real estate guy but I had a portfolio. So right. they would see my profile and they'd be like, oh, I'll respond to this guy. This is interesting. This is a real estate person. Okay. So I was Got able it. to get on the phone with someone like Michael Mandel or someone like Julian Just Smith. Because you come from the real estate business. And once you get on the phone with me, I mean, you got to be crazy to not let me invest <laughs> in your company, right? So so once I could get these guys on the phone, I could convince them that that I could help them beyond just writing a small check. Right. right. So that opened up the floodgates. Some people who didn't want me yeah. to invest. I got people who ignored me. I never right. had anybody who, well, Do you not feel like true. once you could get on the phone with them, you could, you could get into the deal? If it was a right. real estate, yes, if at that point. Estate. Yeah. And then I started workshopping some ideas of maybe starting my own prop tech company um, with some of the learnings from Millennium. But then I kept finding every time I would have an idea, I would find a better entrepreneur than me mm. who, who doing was it. doing it. Wow. And I would just invest with them. I'd much rather, it's kind of been a uh, pretty consistent with my career. I'd much rather do less work and give someone <laughs> money than, you know, be the, mm. be the main person mm. and, and have to do all the hard work. Since you made those first angel investments, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Metaprop because that's obviously a, now an institutional fund built around, obviously, some of your beliefs around prop tech. But before, before you started Metaprop, um, what were some of the biggest learnings or maybe evolution of your own angel investing between those very early angel investments and maybe some of the investments that you were making later on before you started Metaprop? Yeah, I think I think or I like, was all over the place. Right. I think I really started to one, enjoy myself more, two, be helpful to the companies in a meaningful way, and three, to make better financial decisions. Once I decided that I was really going to focus almost exclusively on prop tech, now right. exclusively on prop tech, right? So I think, and and the, why was that? That's because you could just like evaluate things in a much quicker, better way, or you had a better understanding for the people involved. I think I had a better understanding of where the real estate industry was going. Okay than a lot of people okay. in the real estate industry and then yeah. a lot of traditional venture capitalists. Okay. So I'll never forget, I'll give you an example, and I blogged about it before, but but Breather, um, which when it launched or before, I actually invested before it launched, they had no app, they had no locations open. Yeah. And I took it to everybody I knew in the real estate business. And I said, this is the future. Real estate's going to be consumed on demand. It's going to be just like Uber. Yep. And everybody said- Or Airbnb. You are insane. No one is going to mm. do this in our industry. And I just had the conviction that people were going to change the way they thought about commercial space. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I was able to get into that deal. Uh, similarly, with a bunch of other uh, platforms that I invested in early on, where I, I believe I had an information arbitrage okay. that was not looked at um, the real estate industry really hadn't woken up to it, especially on the commercial side, residential a little bit more. And the venture capital community really hadn't figured it out yet either. I think right. I think now it's 
sitting here in 2018, it's it's very different. The real estate, the traditional real estate players all think about this stuff all day, every day, yep. as do the traditional generalist Sand Hill Road funds. I mean, yep. everyone is looking at prop tech right now as a as a mainstream sort of its own asset class uh, in many ways. But why is that? I, I would, you know, we can get to that later, but I, I, it's, it's definitely a theme that we're starting to, well, it's a theme that I think we've invested in a bit at Notation. Absolutely. Without necessarily having planned for it. Um, and so actually very recently, we've been spending a little bit of time thinking like, all right, so really what, what is the, um, some of the generalizable themes around prop tech today? Um, because I think we kind of have a hunch around it and we've invested behind it, but we didn't necessarily do that like we, thematically. We, yeah, exactly. So so I'd be curious to hear your view on on what those themes are today. Well, I think the reason why traditional generalist venture capitalists are excited about the space is just the asset class is so large. Okay. Uh, it's a multi-trillion dollar asset right. class that still remains for the most part, on pen, paper, and mm-hmm. fax machine. Mm-hmm. And my experience with talented VCs is they look for big markets. They look for great teams building great products in big markets that are still on pen and paper. Mm-hmm. And PropTech happens to check all those boxes. Still, even in 2018. Even in 2018, really? there's still so much white space. It's harder to find now. You You have to turn over rocks. You have to go into niches that other people don't understand. But the beauty of real estate is it's such a large market globally that Mm -hmm. a niche uh, can be gigantic. So I'll give you an example of a deal we collaborated on. Uh, Spruce, which is a a tech-enabled title insurance agency. A lot of VCs, when I was talking about it years ago, were like, well, title, it's it's kind of a small market, isn't it? Well, it's not. It's a 16 to $18 billion market just in the United States alone and growing. I don't consider that small uh, by any uh, stretch of the imagination. Same with um, commercial appraisal, same with surveying. There there are so many pockets that are yet to be uh, heavily disrupted in real estate. We did another deal together in the reverse mortgage uh, space. Yet another niche market, quote unquote, that is in the tens of billions of dollars uh, of value. Yeah. So that that is really that's fundamentally why prop tech is an exciting mm. place to be right now is is because the market is so large and because there remain these niches, these verticals, mm. whatever you want to call them, that that have had almost no exposure to technology uh, at all. Beyond just these are really big markets and still in pen and paper. Are people using data in new ways to to unlock some of the value here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the end game, and we're not quite there yet, is to be able to underwrite an asset in 10 seconds. And the reason why someone could theoretically underwrite a real estate asset in 10 seconds is all due to transparency and availability of data. And then these very robust algorithmic engines that sit on top of that data that allow you to do the analysis that used to have to be done by hand, like with an abacus. Like I'll run you through it. So if you look at data from Comstack, CoStar, Reonomy, a collection of that data will give you almost everything you need to analyze what the rent roll should be of a building, right? If you look at a platform like our portfolio company, Envelope, that's taking a process that used to take an architect 
hours and hours and hours of time uh, amassing study, and they do it on in within seconds and mm. re- and and uh, render everything in 3D. Mm. You can look at a. Uh, so we're reaching a point where, at some time in the not so distant future, you're going to have artificially intelligent robots able to underwrite assets almost as well mm. as human beings in one one hundredth of the time that right. it used to take. Right. It's like real estate and data in, in the cloud that you can yeah. analyze and invest in from anywhere in the world. Yeah, I mean the challenge with that, the challenge we face in prop tech because it's so disjoint, disjointed and fragmented, is you have a potential Geigo situation, garbage in, garbage out right. uh, of these algorithms. So right. you have to be very careful. Unlike fintech, where the bulk of the data, the data is highly regulated, and the data is controlled in essence by seven or eight big players, represent ninety five percent market share, whatever. Seven or eight biggest players in the real estate market represent 0.1% globally right. uh, uh, of total right. square footage. Right. So you have to be very, very careful when you're dealing with real estate data to make sure that that it is cleaned up and um, coherent because otherwise you can get in big trouble. Yep. I want to get to Metaprop. One last question while we're on the real estate tech stuff, partly because I'm interested. Um how do you think about the intersection of real estate and blockchain and potentially like the securitization of a bunch of these assets on blockchain? Yeah, there's a lot. I was actually just today on a, a Crefsy, um, which is a commercial real estate finance um, uh, conference. I was on a blockchain and real estate panel. Okay. And there are many different things going on right now with real estate and blockchain that are somewhat related, but also somewhat unrelated. So one thing that's happening is there are countries, sovereign nations, this is, in my opinion, the most exciting thing, are putting all of their land registry data, all of their property title information onto the blockchain. Uh, The first to do it was the Republic of Georgia. Wow. There are also um, projects underway in Sweden. Um, with a company called Chromaway. There's uh, Consensus is working with the governments in the UAE to put uh, property records on yep. the Ethereum blockchain. Yep. Um, the uh, experiment in the Republic of Georgia, I believe, was done on a private blockchain. Okay. So that's the first exciting thing that's happening yeah. is, is we are going to have these, uh, instead of having physical, you know, now in the United States, our, our titles are stored. Yeah on paper at county clerk's offices. But a lot of these developing countries are able to leapfrog us through blockchain where they have federal land registries and they are basically skipping, just like in West Africa, they never had rotary phones. They went right to smartphones. They never even had basic cell phones. They kind of went straight to feature phones and smartphones. You're seeing a country like the Republic of Georgia, which never had a um, paper title system Mm. that was functional. Mm leapfrog us and everyone else uh, for that matter. And now they have a robust blockchain-based land registry. So so that's the first thing that's happening. Then then the question would be, well, what does that do for anybody? Well, it enables conveyance of property to occur on the blockchain to be verified on the blockchain. And you may say, okay, well, who cares? Well, why is that important? The reason why that's important is it will drastically reduce the amount of title fraud and wire fraud uh, that occur yep. uh, within real estate transactions. Yep. So, so there are still uh, about 
no one knows the exact number, but about 3% of all title claims that of all title revenue that's collected, um, premiums are paid out due to title fraud. Yeah. So blockchain could theoretically completely eliminate title fraud. Yeah. So that's the conveyance angle of, of real estate and blockchain. Then there's a whole other angle with the tokenization yeah. of real estate yeah. and the theoretical opening up of capitalizing real estate assets through the yep. blockchain. Yep. Now that is interesting. It's not particularly technologically exciting in my opinion because right. you're not you're not innovating on it. You're not doing anything from a real estate perspective that's any different, but what you are doing is you are creating another tranche of the capital stack. Yep. So let's say it sits let's say at the top you have your senior loan which is typically from a bank. Mm-hmm. Then you may have mes debt, which mm-hmm. is typically from an opportunistic fund looking to mm-hmm. get you know twelve percent, and if you default, potentially take over mm-hmm. the project and execute it themselves. Then there's the equity, which theoretically the developer should be owning, mm-hmm. and then potentially in between the equity and the mes debt, we're now seeing another layer of capitalization, which could become tokens, and real estate developers are becoming increasingly interested in accessing this part of the capital markets because it enables them to, one, uh, finance their projects from all over the world much easier with, okay. with much lower transaction costs so and all that. basically a regulatory arbitrage. It's enabling people. So if, if it's enabling people to get money from across the world, it's yep. enabling people to get money from some of the... Uh, crypto millionaires out there um, okay. who who, who uh, may not have extensive assets in fiat, but okay. still want exposure to real estate. Okay. Beyond that, I don't know right. what exactly it's doing. And there are quite a few developers who are experimenting with tokenizing their buildings. Um, when I ask them, well, is it working? They say, I don't really care. If it doesn't work, I'll finance it the old-fashioned way. Right. It's kind of a win-win. Um, the only... Issues that are popping up relate to the SEC, and if you have to register that token as a security, then what's the point? Because you can only have ninety nine right. people buy it anyway. Right. So, so no one's cracked the utility token versus security token vis a vis the real estate industry that I've found thus far. Yeah, but it it, it it could happen. So those are the those are the two kind of related but unrelated things going on in, in real estate blockchain right now. I want to talk about Metaprop. Could you tell us a little bit about the a little bit about the backstory? Yeah, sure. So a- as I mentioned, I I had become a uh, psychotically prolific prop tech angel investor, starting in 2010, going up to about 2015. Um, what's when the, I was, what's the one prop tech company that you are not an investor in that you? There are so many. There's too many. Okay. I mean, the one that I, I can tell you the one that I wish I was an investor in that I'm not is yeah. certainly VTS. I think VTS is just a best-in-class product. Mm. Uh, Nick Romito and Brandon Weber have become very close friends mm. uh, of ours. They were all very kind to us at Metaprop when we were mm. starting out, um, sort of putting their stamp of approval, which went a long way. Then I would say the other one that I would love to be invested in that I'm not is Convene. Again, similar situation. They've just become very, very close friends of ours. Mm. And I just think the world of how that company's run and managed. And mm. so those would be the two that that I wish I, mm. you know. 
Um, how did you start to formalize the practice for Metapro? So yeah, so so I was known around town as as a expert in the field. Um, the guy who became my partner, a guy named Aaron Block, had just sold his uh, his last business, which was a cross border Russia U.S. e commerce business. So it had mm. nothing to do with real okay. estate, but. The origins of that business came when he was a partner at Cushman and Wakefield and was sent over to open up Cushman and Wakefield's operations in Russia, Ukraine, mm. and Kazakhstan. Mm. Um, so through that, he learned Russian and he, he really set up Cushman's operation, came back to the States, got an opportunity to get involved with this e-commerce company and no mm. experience with e-commerce. Fast forward to twenty. End of 2014, the Crimea sanctions hit. His business goes from $35 million a year in revenue to almost evaporating. He has to sell it very quickly. Mm. He has to move back to New York for personal reasons. Mm. So he finds himself with no job in New York for the first time in 20 years, but had a hunch that because he had been a partner at Cushion and Wakefield and was really steeped in commercial real estate and also done this technology business that he too could plant a flag mm. and become a Mr. PropTech mm. of his own. He started networking. He's a very aggressive networker. He started networking with people and everybody he spoke to said, you have to meet this guy, Zach Aarons. So he finally got introduced to our dear mutual friend, Ryan Malone um, of Expansion VC, mm-hmm. who, who we'd, I collaborated with on many deals, probably mm-hmm. a dozen deals, uh, also comes from the real estate. His family is mm-hmm. fourth generation real estate family. Mm-hmm. We met, this was about, this was, you know, toward the end of 2014. And his original plan, Aaron's original plan was he was going to get, he wanted me to introduce him to all the prop tech founders I knew. And he wanted to work for one of them, maybe as a COO, as someone who could sort of help turbocharge their growth. I said, sure, I'll make a few intros for him. I made a bunch of intros for him. He he set off on the most aggressive six-week networking tour I've ever seen. He met <laughs> literally everybody in the space, right. plus some. And he came back to me and he said, you know, I don't want to work for any of these people. Um, I've noticed that there is a, is a hole in the market right now, and there's not enough communication going on between the traditional real estate players, the real estate tech entrepreneurs and the venture capitalists. And I think that an accelerator program specifically focused on this sector is the best way to bridge the gap. And I said, well, accelerator programs are great in theory, but they make no money. They're really hard to run. Um, it's totally thankless. And I don't want to have anything to do with it. And <laughs> right. he said, well, no, I think we should do it. And he also got introduced to our third uh, co-founder, Clelia Peters, who at the time and still is, was running uh, Warburg Realty, uh, which um, which is a company her father founded, res- mm-hmm. very high-end residential brokerage house. In, mm-hmm. in, and she had also had this weird career where she was in real estate, but also doing technology stuff. She was working with Sally Krawcheck on, on Sally's original tech uh, initiative. Mm-hmm. She, she was incubating a residential real estate tech startup. So she had the same idea. So I finally made a deal with Aaron after he kept sort of approaching me about this accelerator. I said, okay, if you do all the work, and I mean all the work, you have to set the whole thing up. I will guarantee you that on day one, when you launch this accelerator, you'll have companies in it. That's what I'll do. I'll get the companies. You do everything else. And I thought that would get him to go away. 
Cause that's like kind of a rude thing to say to somebody. Um, but I think he viewed that as a challenge right. and he came back again about a month later and he said, okay, I did my part of the deal. And I was like, what? Okay. <laughs> so I then went out yeah. and I recruited uh, our first batch right. uh, to launch. And we sort of, we sort of mapped out what a timeline would look like our goal. So, so this is, we're now in, March or eight March, let's say, of 2015. And we kind of mapped out, okay, if we wanted to have a demo day in January, like when would we have to launch the accelerator? And we mm-hmm. figured out that we basically had to launch it by Labor Day, mm-hmm. which meant that we needed the companies signed up by August, right? right? So I went out and I pulled every string I could. I I, I harangued people. I, I, you know, I, I, I went to all these founders and, and we... For our first class, we took no additional sweat equity because we knew we were an unproven okay. entity. So we offered, we basically said, we'll give you guys a little bit of money. Okay. All you have to give us is your time and your reputation risk, and we won't take any additional equity. Okay. So that's how we were As able- you'll, you'll invest alongside whatever other capital- Right. And we said, we said, whatever your last round is yeah. or whatever current round you're raising, we'll invest on those terms mm. straight up. Mm. Same deal as everyone else. Mm. We won't take any additional equity- yeah. Um, because you're sort of the beta group and we yep. understand that you're taking just as big a risk doing right. this for your That's reputations fine. as we That's are fine. for ours. Yeah. So August 2015 rolls around. We're supposed to launch with six companies. We have zero. And uh, we somehow managed to get a bunch of companies to commit in like a two-week span. Uh, we launched around Labor Day and we just sort of started chugging along. We had no idea what we were doing. We we sort of ad hoc programmed it. We we begged, borrowed, and stole. You know, we talked to the YC guys. We talked mm-hmm. to uh, the Techstars people. We spoke mm-hmm. to the Dreamit people. Um, we spoke to the AngelPad people. We did our homework on what a what we wanted, what a good accelerator looked like. We did our homework on what a good sector specific mm-hmm. accelerator looked like. And then we added Aaron's a member of uh, YPO. So we added a lot of YPO type forum stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So we kind of took from everything we could to craft the initial programming. But it was really just the three of us. What's YPO? Uh, I think it's called Young Presidents Organization. Okay. It's it's okay. a it's a networking group okay. for business okay. people. Um, but they do a lot of sort of intense like self-discovery and forum sessions and group yeah. therapy type stuff. Um are yeah, they, so that's they're, mind, they're mindful. <laughs> they're very mindful. Well, some of them are. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, where where is um? And so tell us what what is Metaprop today? So Metaprop today is an investment and advisory firm, okay. exclusively focused on the prop tech sector. Okay. And we have a few different business verticals. We have the original vertical, which was the accelerator. Yep. That has now blossomed into multiple different accelerator programs. Okay. So we have our flagship 22-week accelerator that takes place in the fall here in New York City. We also, this spring, did our first international accelerator called the Metaprop Bridge, which we did in London, where we worked with companies who were slightly later stage because they were ready to expand their business to the United States. Yep. Those companies, actually, as we sit here now, it's uh, June of 2018. They're actually here in New York now, starting this roadshow um, to get cool. them. So, so we now have a suite of accelerator programs. We also have uh, two venture capital funds. We have our first uh, Metaprop Ventures Fund One which was a $2 million vehicle, which we fully deployed uh, by 2017. Yep. And Metaprop Ventures 2, which is a $40 million vehicle that we started deploying um, last, uh, last year. 
Um, okay. And uh, and that, um, but we're we're really focused on the early stages, uh, pre-seed, seed, the occasional Series A. If we really, really just have to have something. Um, and then we also do advisory work. Uh, our advisory business, we help some of the largest real estate companies in the world get a better handle on this tsunami that is prop tech. And mm-hmm. we help them. We have a four-step process. Um, observe. So we help them where their eyes and ears yep. to the early stage. We help them test. So figuring out which companies they want to pilot with. Scale figuring out which companies they want to roll out to their whole portfolio and then invest. Mm. In, in, in increasingly, you're seeing more and more traditional real estate companies want to take capital from their balance sheets and mm. put it as equity into the companies um, mm. where they're customers. Interesting. So we help shepherd them through that process. That's yep. the advisory business. We also do a lot of events uh, and programming. Um, we run every We run New York City Real Estate Tech Week. Um, in the fall, which has our flagship um, MIP and Prop Tech event, we partner with Reed Midham, one of the largest events producers in the world. On that, um, and then we also put out a lot of a lot of content. Yep. So we're constantly doing stuff like this. We have our own podcast series as well. Yep. It's not as good as this, but we try. It's called the Meta Propcast. Um, we also have a pretty active blog, um, and uh, we're constantly. We also put out a lot of research reports. Uh, we put out a very Interesting report a couple of months ago, for example, on PropTech uh, in China. Um, to be clear, the the venture firm invests in companies across the U.S., not just the companies that are in the accelerator. Correct. Right. So the the venture fund, and we actually invest globally. Okay. Um, we it. we've done deals in Singapore. Okay. Uh, we've done deals in Spain. Okay. Um, it's a, it's it's obviously majority focused in New York because that's yeah. where we're based. Yeah. But the fund will back companies that go through the accelerator program as well as companies that yeah. do not. That um, so our portfolio is about two thirds not in the accelerator and one third accelerator companies. Um, tell me about uh, raising that fund. Um. <laughs> I know. Uh, I mean, any raising any first time, you know, institutional fund is is difficult, and um, so I'm just curious to hear how how you went about it. Yeah. So so fund one, the is it process. Mostly those real estate firms that you advise that are also in the fund. Yes, it's okay. it, the bulk wow. of our LP capital. Since yeah. this is a show about LPs, indeed, the bulk of our LP capital comes from real estate companies. Okay, and. What I would say, so our original pitch was what I imagine a traditional venture capitalist does to pitch, where we go in, we say, here's our strategy, and Mm -hmm. it's a big sector, and we're the best at it, and Mm -hmm. you give us a dollar, and you're going to get five back in 10 years, right? Uh, That proved to be not particularly impactful for these LPs. What we realized after a few months of the raise was that while they are very excited to give us a dollar and get five back, they are looking at prop tech in a more holistic way. And they are taking a chunk of capital Mm -hmm. that they want to deploy into prop tech. They typically want to deploy it into slightly later stage companies than we're playing in because they want to deploy it into companies that are service providers for the most part. And they really want to use us as a sourcing and education mechanism to do that better. So our pitch gradually morphed from give us a dollar, we'll give you five to give us a dollar, we'll give you five, and 
we will help you source, let's say your entire allocation isn't $1, but it's $10. We will make sure that the re- that the, uh, the remaining $9 that you didn't put with our fund is well invested mm-hmm. when you want to do directs. We've even had, you know, we're, we pride ourselves on this. We're, we're really collaborative, really open. We've even worked with people to diligence investments and other funds mm-hmm. that are theoretically competitors to ours mm-hmm. because we believe that if you're a institutional real estate firm right now, you need exposure not just to one prop tech fund, but probably a couple of different ones that maybe play mm. at different stages. Mm. Maybe they play in different geographies. Mm. Maybe they play in different asset classes, right? You want to get diversification. And then that just helps your your sourcing. So we've never, so I think our, I think it became a lot easier. We started to see traction with our fundraising mm. when we really nailed that communication. And when we were able to say, here, here's your prop tech bucket. This is how you get educated. This is how you get access. And yes, it involves investing some money with us, but that's one piece right. of a larger puzzle. And we're going to be your shepherds to help you navigate that 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 whole thing. Do you think that the super traditional LP community doesn't because there are there are very traditional, let's say like endowments and fund of funds and these folks that I think are starting to invest in vertical specific funds. Do you think that they don't quite get prop tech yet? And will, or do you think like they don't believe in the category yet, or do you think that they never will for some for some reason? I think the good ones already get it. They yeah. are looking at sector specific funds, yeah, as a strategy, yeah. Prop tech being one category, but keep in mind they're generalists too. So so they're not going to do ten sector specific funds. They're going to maybe do four. Yep. So that means that they're measuring prop tech against all the against other health tech, gov tech, right. ed tech, you mm. name it, fintech, mm. right? So we're competing mm. not just against our prop tech competitors for Got those it. dollars. Yeah. And I know this for a fact, and I'm not going to mention who it is, but we went down the line with a very, very well respected um, fund of funds manager. It was the fund of funds manager that kind of went as the deepest of everybody with us. And they said at the end of the day, they said, we really like you guys. We really like sector-specific strategies, but we like these particular sectors better for us. So that's what I'll say about the fund of funds world, that they are definitely waking up to prop tech. And I think you'll see the next fund cycle when we go and raise fund three, I think you're going to see a lot more activity. And you've already seen it. um, Fifth Wall has has money from traditional fund of funds managers. So there's already some of that. I think the interesting thing, the challenge for us, and I and I talk about this a lot because I'm really hoping I can personally be the catalyst for it. At the pension fund level, you have real estate allocators right. who invest actually in a lot of our LPs. So right. so these big pension funds, they invest in 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 the big real estate private yep. equity funds, you yep. know, so Cerberus and Blackstone yep. and KKR and RXR and all these funds, right? Then you also have, and I'm imagining, I've never been to a pension fund office, but I'm imagining not far from where that person sits, there sits another person who is the pensions venture capital allocator, right? Who's running around giving money to Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins and Notation Capital and whatever. 
And part of my challenge is to get those two people to talk. Wow, that's right. Because I, from what I have heard, there's not a whole lot. I'm sure there's, I don't think they hate each other, but I don't think there's a lot of talk at these pension funds about looking holistically at their allocation and, and doing a prop tech fund, which would require, really, if they wanted to do it right, it would require collaboration hmm. between the real estate allocator at said pension fund and the yeah. venture capital private equity allocator. Yeah. And that hasn't happened yet. And we are hoping that when we're out in the market raising yeah. our third fund, that that will have happened and we're trying to catalyze it. And 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 now I'm letting you in, uh, you know, really opening up the kimono here. But But one of our goals, so we ask all of our LPs, who are all the people who raise from these people, we say, well, what are these people demanding you to show them about how you leverage technology. Like, where's that deck? Where's that, where's that slide in your deck where you have to talk about how you're better than all your competition because within your assets, you leverage technology better. Mm-hmm. So you do it faster, better, cheaper, right? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, they don't ask. And I'm betting that changes. I'm right. betting the next time when Blackstone or whomever right. is out right. raising their next fund, right. that their institutional LPs, whether it's Calpers or, or whomever is going to have a specific pointed question for that manager to say, what are you doing about technology? Yep. And firms like Brookfield have an answer. They say, well, we actually just spun up Brookfield Ventures, a $250 million Sand Hill Road-based venture capital fund. Yep. And I would imagine the pension fund manager says, okay. Right. <laughs> Sounds like right. a pretty good solution right. to my question. Do you think that's the right solution though? Look, well, that's a that's a whole other. Yeah. Do you want to go down? Do you want to go there? We can yeah. go there. So, there's no right or wrong way to skin this cat, right? Not everybody has 250 million in balance sheet capital to right. start their own growth right. equity fund. Um, what we recommend is that people do whatever they're comfortable with that aligns with their goals. So, some different people have different goals. Some firms have goals where it's, I just want to increase NOI. NOI for the uh, non-real estate people's net operating income. NOI is our version of EBITDA. It's the most important real estate metric. So some firms are interested in using technology to make more money. Some firms are interested in using technology because they want to seem innovative in order to recruit and retain the elusive millennial Hmm. employee. Mm -hmm. Um, And some firms are interested in technology because they want to make money in the venture business, Mm. okay? And one of our jobs, one of the things we do in our advisory business is we help, first, we help people get a sense of what their goals are. Because a lot of people don't even know what their goals are. Right. And then we map out a strategy for them that for the least amount of money and time gets them as close to their goals as possible. So if you really just care about recruiting and retaining, and there's nothing wrong with that, you shouldn't necessarily be running around starting your own venture capital funds and and spending hundreds of millions of dollars. Maybe that money could be better spent writing $50,000 accelerator sponsorship checks, right? Or sponsoring the PropTech Summit with a Mm $20,000 check, right? Mm -hmm. Um, let's say you're only interested in growing NOI. Do you really need your own venture fund to do that? Or do you need an aggressive pilot and test program? It it totally depends. What we fundamentally tell the most, the people who lean in the hardest 
we tell them to do everything. We say, mm. you need to be out there in the community, signaling that you're innovative, which mm. means sponsoring, you know, showing up and sponsoring events and things like that. You need to be aggressively piloting and testing new technologies. And you need to be putting your money where your mouth is. And whether it's on a sort of balance sheet ad hoc basis or it's yeah. an organized thing like Brookfield uh, did and yeah. uh, or uh, Bitsui Fudo-san just did with a $300 million fund, you know, that, 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 it, it kind of depends. I think I think only the people of huge size, like a Brookfield or a Mitsui Fudo-san, should be setting up their own fund because it's expensive. You right. know, right. Brookfield brought in a former Silver Lake right. team right. to run it. Um, the other people we deal with when they're dealing with lower, you know, dollar amounts, I would say in the tens of millions that they want to allocate, we recommend that they invest. You know, and this is slightly self-serving that they put some of that money with us, and then they use us to help them execute the directs. Yep. You split your time to a certain degree between real estate development, tech investing now primarily through Metaprop. Um, how do you imagine that will evolve over the next uh, five to 10 years? I have no idea. Okay. Um, I, uh, I think it's an advantage that I, it's an advantage to the technology portfolio that I still have one foot in the hard asset yep. for a couple of reasons. One, they always have a pilot partner. Right. <laughs> right. right. You want someone to right. help they'll, get something in the try. building. You'll try. It. I can I can usually convince someone at Millennium to to Give to pilot something. Yep. Um also I'm I'm just because I'm in it day to day, I I am able to see things I think that uh, people who are a little bit removed see trends that that yeah. people uh, who are a little bit more removed uh, don't see. I think on speaking as a, on the hard asset side, the benefit to having me so involved in technology is I am able to send things to my colleagues that help either grow NOI or help yeah. us win RFP for responses the, or whatever it is. For all the same reasons you just described why the big companies. Exactly. Might. Right. I'm an in-house yeah. version of that effectively yeah. for Millennium. Yeah. Um, it is very challenging to manage my time. Right. And I I am constantly pulled in multiple different directions. And I have a lot of, um, I would say, anxiety uh, okay. around that. Right. Um, just managing things day to day. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. I, I As I mentioned, I was at this, um, speaking on this blockchain right. panel, which right. is an important thing for me to do for Metaprop. And then I had to literally sprint back to the Millennium office to do a conference call for a development project that right. was super duper important. Right. So usually it works out and I can manage it, but there there's definitely are days where I just feel really overwhelmed. Right. Um, so I don't, I take every day as a new opportunity and I try not to think I have, look, we have, we have specific company goals at Millennium for where we want to be in five years, 10 years, buildings we want to get built and things like that. We have a plan. We have a plan at Metaprop for how we want to grow each of our business verticals, whether that's the advisory business, the accelerator mm -hmm. business, or the ventures business. Mm -hmm. But I don't have my own sort of day-to-day, week-to-week mm -hmm. goals where I want to be. I'm, I really try to... Um, this is going to sound cliche, but I really do try to go with the flow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And you kind of love it. I can tell. Like you love the 
hustling from one thing to the I do. I do. I do. All the different things and being part of it. I love, yeah. I love like, I love having the dichotomy of running from a, a conference where I'm speaking about blockchain eliminating title fraud and then hop on a call with a traffic engineer to discuss a traffic study in the context mm. of an entitlement. Mm. I think the variety of work, I, I, I'm very lucky and blessed mm. that I get that level of variety on a daily basis. I, I, I don't know too many other people mm. who have that. Um, you know, I'm sure Elon Musk has it. I'm sure Jack Dorsey has it, but on a much grander scale than me. But um, <laughs> yeah. it, is, it is exhilarating yeah. at times for sure. Zach, thank you. Um, really appreciate it. Uh, appreciate all your support over the last number of years around Notation as well. Um, and, uh, and wish you all the best with Metaprop. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams in the trenches from day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational and tactical issues, and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with the hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glaue, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.